Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Need Some Introduction. I'm your host, Victor, and in today's episode, I'll be breaking down and critiquing the most recent episode of the Apple TV series, Silo. This is the eighth episode of season one, and it has been renewed for season two, by the way. Thank goodness for fans of this show, because I have a feeling it's going to be another one of those shows that ends its season one on a cliffhanger. This is a pet peeve of mine, by the way. And I do think we're headed towards the same. This episode is called Hannah. And Hannah, of course, is Juliet's mother. And we have a flashback that fills us in on the family history here, as well as resolving the biggest mystery of the season so far, and pretty much setting up the show to be a chase thriller through its final two episodes. I believe this recap and analysis will be pretty short. And the rest of the episode will be filled up with my many, many thoughts on the latest season of Black Mirror, the Netflix sci-fi anthology series from Charlie Brooker. A mixed bag, as is always the case, honestly, with Black Mirror. If you are curious about my opinions of the first five seasons of the show, do check out last week's episode where I did rank those seasons, rank those episodes, and gave many reviews on each one of those episodes. This episode is late. I had real work to do, my actual job, my paying job, as well as graduations and Father's Day weekend plans. So my apologies for being a little behind on this, but you may see extra content, probably shorter episodes next week, a very busy week after a very quiet June so far. I will probably continue to give my opinions on this intriguingly bad, but interesting season of The Idol so far. I'm still hanging in there for episode three. We'll see how long I can tolerate it. Plus, Secret Invasion, the new Marvel series featuring the return of Sam Jackson to the franchise, premieres this week, as does The Bear, the entire season two of The Bear premiering this week as well. And of course, more silo coverage. And I'm also compiling a list of recommendations, other shows, other anthology shows, or perhaps individual episodes within other anthologies that I would suggest as a follow-up to this mixed bag of Black Mirror episodes. So all of that will be coming in the upcoming week or soon thereafter. Make sure you subscribe if you'd like to get notifications when those episodes become available. One more quick reminder, happy Father's Day, by the way, to myself and to all of you. Just one more thing you may want to watch. The Avatar sequel is now available on HBO and now on Disney+, and I think on Hulu also. So if you haven't seen it already, very easy to watch. And it looks great on a nice television. Looks great even in 2D, although it was quite something to see, for me anyway. IMAX 3D, quite a knockout that film was. But still beautiful to look at even on a nice high-end two-dimensional TV screen. If you're just here for the Black Mirror coverage, jump ahead to the 15-minute mark of the episode, straight into that commentary, past this brief recap of Silo. So this episode, Hannah, I believe this is the second episode this season to begin with a flashback. We see Juliet as a little girl with her mother, Hannah. They're in this cornfield, one of these fields where they grow the food for the silo denizens. They've met with a man and there's an exchange here between Hannah and this farmer. She's gotten him some pills, I guess, for recreational use. And she's exchanging it for a rabbit who seems to be sick. We learn that the rabbit has a hole in its heart, similar to Jacob, Juliet's brother, who also died of a similar birth defect. Hannah's obsessed that she thinks she can do a surgery using a microscope. And if she can cure the rabbit, then this would give parents a similar procedure they could do to save their children's lives. Still in the past, Judicial has come and ransacked the apartment looking for the microscope. And they're basically destroying everything there. And this is the source of the rift between Juliet and her father, Pete, 
In this flashback, Hannah has blamed Pete for ratting her out. He's always a rule follower. And as I had speculated in an earlier recap of the season, it does seem that the pairing of these people is approved by the powers that be in the silo in a way to create couples where they police themselves. We've seen this pattern multiple times here, whether it's Holston and his wife earlier in the season, whether it is Pete and Hannah here, and we see it again with Billings and his wife. There seems to be some mathematics here in creating partnerships where potentially one of the spouses is spying on the other or minimally is continuously in their ear about making sure that they comply with the pact and with the rules of control within the silo itself. Of course, there's a negative side to this as well. Pete gets blamed here for informing on Hannah. Hannah cleverly turns out that she doesn't have the microscope in one place. She's actually assembled it from many different parts, and those parts are strewn about, integrated into furniture and knickknacks around the entire home. And she assembles the microscope, and this judicial enforcer seems pretty impressed with this, and then immediately destroys the microscope. <laughs> we still at this moment, and the question is actually asked over the course of this episode itself, do not know why there is this rule against magnification. It's strange to imagine that knowing that there are stars, that the silo is not the center of the world, I have to assume that anybody who's living in the silo has to assume that at some point they lived on the surface. How is it knowing that this planet is only one planet in a solar system, a danger to the control within the silo? It seems that knowing that the outside world will kill you, <laughs> if that is indeed the case, remains to be seen, of course, that that would be threat enough, regardless of whether they are just a speck within a larger cosmos. But more interestingly is the fact that they don't want them seeing too small, being able to magnify things that are much smaller. It still remains to be seen exactly how that would potentially be a risk to the powers that be. Somewhat importantly here, we do discover that the rabbit has actually survived. So Hannah can claim some minor victory that she was right and she was able to perform the surgery on the rabbit and actually save its life. Something that could have been useful to the surgeons within the silo, but absolute control, I guess, is more important than any kind of medical breakthrough. And I'm assuming here that this is also the root cause of Hannah's suicide. It may have been hinted in earlier episodes that there wasn't really a suicide. There's been so many murders on the show, wouldn't be surprising. But rather that this was one defeat that she couldn't tolerate, maybe just seeing the inevitable futility of it all, and even feeling that even now her husband was against her, even in her own home, she decided to commit suicide instead. But she is abandoning her daughter to the same fate, which is pretty messed up. Regardless, I can appreciate how frustrated she must have felt. In the present tense, Judicial is raiding the medical center where Juliet had been. Sims goes to speak to Gloria directly. He removes the blanket from the mirror. He, of course, knows at this point that they know that there are cameras behind the mirrors. He notices the vent is open, of course, where the hard drive was hidden. And an interesting interaction here between Gloria and Sims. We get to see a little more humanity to this character. Turns out that Gloria is the reason that, that Sims' wife was able to carry the baby to term. So he is appreciative of that and tells her that if she tells him what he needs to know, he'll give her the good stuff. This is the medicine that allows her to dream. And I'm assuming now, once again, confused a little bit by the vision she was having in a previous episode, was that a memory or was that simply a fantasy invoked by the, medic the medication? It does here, based on this interaction, appear to be just a fantasy, maybe based on those books she was reading. But I guess that is still an open question. There's a comment that Gloria made that they put something in the water to make people forget. So is this medication simply allowing her to remember? 
I am still unsure as to whether these people ever lived on the surface and have forgotten it or whether those visions she had of being by the waterside is simply a dream or a fantasy based on what she knows of the world before. If that 144 years is anywhere near true, of course, these people have not lived up on the surface of the earth. But who knows? Maybe everything we know is a lie. Juliet is desperately trying to get the mechanical with the hard drive, believing that Martha may be able to get onto the hard drive. Juliet goes on a little odyssey throughout the silo. First, she's hiding out in the nursery, then decides to return to the sheriff's department where her office is being ransacked, looking for the hard drive. They search her things, but they do not find them. She tries to turn the tables momentarily, using the pact and the improper search of her office to arrest Sims. While Sims is locked up, she tries to make her way, once again, to mechanical, stops along the way, meets with her dad, and unpacks all the discoveries she's made in the past couple of episodes. Most importantly, that there were cameras behind the mirrors. He breaks down with this revelation, now finally understanding that his wife was betrayed because she was being spied on. They were all being spied on. But of course, that was what had caused the breakdown of their marriage and her eventual suicide. And Juliet does have to have this moment of reconciliation with her dad, at least. Oh, by the way, once they arrest Sims, Juliet takes the opportunity to ransack his office and find some files here that he's reviewing, including Hannah's, her, her mom's. Juliet, despite being searched, did not have the hard drive on her. She had left it at the nursery. Juliet, now with hard drive in hand, is trying to make her way down the stairwell. But there are checkpoints. Everybody's being searched. While she's held up, she sends a porter with a note to Lucas and encoded in a way to draw him to her. She tries to recruit him, even mentioning the fact that the suspicious deaths recently are all actually murders. Even though he seems to want to know the truth, when push comes to shove, he seems a little threatened by all of this. She even smashes a mirror to show him that they're all being surveilled. But this only freaks him out even more. I bring this up because I do think he's going to be important in the upcoming episodes. So this is definitely not the last of Lucas. It's not just to show that recruiting people to your side is futile. I think he's on a journey to become a collaborator with her, to potentially providing her escape. At this point, Juliet just tries to bully her way through the checkpoint. She's saying, do you know who I am? When she's intercepted by Bernard, the head of IT, and now current acting mayor, played by Tim Robbins. Bernard keeps playing that he's her ally, mentioning that... Judicial is after his powers as well, and he's afraid he might end up dead next. And he takes him to a private place, a place that's hard to monitor. Of course, the middle of the cornfield, bringing us full circle to the beginning of the episode. As he's questioning Juliet, she's not being very forthcoming, smart to not fully trust him yet, and he lets slip that he knows about the hard drive. And with that, the gig is up. And as I had speculated, I mean, honestly, all the way back in episode one, I'm like, Bernard's the bad guy. But then they really did a pretty good job of making me think that Sims is the one's pulling the strings. But of course, he was just the muscle for Bernard, who's really pulling all the strings. Juliet does try to run for it, but not only is she caught by judicial. Part of the reason she's here, where there are no cameras and there's no audio recordings, is because he gets to say, I heard Juliet say she wants to go outside and clean. And Sim says, I heard exactly the same thing. And all the other arresting officers nod their heads. Therefore, she said it in front of multiple witnesses. It must be true. She's going to clean. Of course, over the course of the day, everybody finds out about this, does not believe it for a minute, but it doesn't matter. Juliet, meanwhile, is being escorted to the prison cell to await her sentencing by Billings. And we have seen over the course of the episode that his condition is getting worse and worse, especially given the stress of the situation. She takes advantage of it when he's trying to restrain her and breaks free. She does try to win him over to her side, 
but he's pretty much <laughs> tired of all of this. His life's been in chaos ever since she became sheriff. And as the episode ends, she's broken free, has grabbed her back with the hard drive on, on it, and jumps over the stairwell. And now she's dead. <laughs> no, unlikely she's dead. Not sure how she survives that fall. I hope she's very close to the bottom of the stairwell. I guess we will wait and see next week. A few other points here. We did see that Lucas had mentioned that she, as sheriff, does have the security access to access the files on the drive. Unfortunately, she must do that from her office, which, of course, she can't get back into, at least not at this moment. I hope next week she doesn't just walk into her office and plug in the hard drive and log in, like as if everybody didn't know she was going to go back there. Or does Billing smuggle her in, perhaps? That's actually a possibility, I would guess. Or does she make it down to mechanical and somehow... Martha is able to unlock the drive. I mean, you can unlock the drive. We have seen that people have navigated the file structure without having the proper clearance, since that's the instigating circumstance of this entire series. But how she's going to read from that drive remains to be seen. As for the episode itself, it moves things forward. I'm pretty happy with it. I felt that the Bernard reveal is a little late in the game, should be something that came a little earlier, so they could have explored some of these topics. This is my taste. I would have preferred wrestling with these ideas of, do you go along to get along? What do you sacrifice to have order in a society? And then does that just become a slippery slope into authoritarianism? And of course, the idea that this is an authoritarian society controlled not only by Bernard and his access to information, but by the way you can couple with each other by creating these structures that make sure you follow the rules. And that have these many little rules that seem relatively insignificant enable someone to control the decisions you're allowed to even make. I think thematically, this is very interesting. It's very rich for exploration. And that maybe, this is where my frustration with cliffhanger seasons comes from, maybe this is something that we can luxuriate in and really examine in season two, but does not seem to be the focus here for season one where the mystery, which isn't much of a mystery, I mean, it's pretty much my suspect number one turned out to be the guy calling all the shots, became such a focus of this season. It seems like a miscalculation to make the mystery such a big part of this first season of the show. And at this point, becoming a chase thriller, basically, but only for two more episodes, or maybe even just one more episode before we have to wrap things up for season two. Strangely structured, I would say. A strange way to dole out this story over 10 episodes, no less. And here we are just two weeks away. Okay, that's the end of my recap. And now let's get into something I'm much more fascinated by, which is my reaction to these five episodes, these five most recent episodes of Black Mirror. Now, roughly, there's four buckets I can put all the previous Black Mirror episodes into. And to its credit, the biggest bucket is the first bucket, which is incredible standalone stories, basically movies or short films that stand on their own as just really impressive social commentary technological dystopia and combination of both. That's probably the first seven episodes that I listed in last week's episode. And then the next five or so, which just takes you pretty much to the middle of the list, are episodes that are almost great. Like they just, they're missing that extra, maybe the performance, they don't have that really standout performance or really memorable concept or the direction just doesn't elevate the material in any way. Or maybe the ending is kind of a fizz, fizzles out. But other than that, nearly in that upper category, but just something is missing. And then roughly like the next six episodes, once again, have very strong elements to them, maybe a really strong concept or really great performance or really great execution, but then the story doesn't go anywhere. Usually great concepts and something lacking, maybe oftentimes just the script doesn't develop those concepts successfully. 
And that's the next bucket. And then the final bucket, the last five or six of those episodes are really just a total miss. It's like technophobia mad libs. You just kind of stick some scary words in there and kind of string them together. I've played around with ChatGPT <laughs> and had it mock up a Black Mirror plot line. Some of those are better <laughs> than these last bucket. And I felt that was really very much the case in season five of the series. And I do wonder if the huge project that it was to execute Bandersnatch maybe did steal away from the production of those additional three episodes. Anyway, that's all behind the scenes. The quality of the episodes I thought were below average. Roughly what buckets would I put each one of these episodes into? That's kind of how I thought about each one of these as I was watching them or after I watched them. So the season kicks off with an episode called Joan is Awful. Regardless of how good this episode is, I thought this was a very good choice to be the first episode of the season. This episode was written by Charlie Brooker by himself. He does sometimes have assistance, but this one was a solo job as far as how it is credited anyway. And this is directed by Ali Pankew, mostly a TV director, but she does have a movie that played at some film festivals this year called I Used to Be Funny, which got some very good early buzz. I'm curious to see that one coming later this year, actually. And in this episode, this character Joan, played by Annie Murphy from Schitt's Creek. Interestingly, her most recent work was two seasons of Kevin Can F Himself, which I believe is only available on AMC+, Plus, so a little hard to watch. Ironically, somewhat, or maybe not, she plays the protagonist of the series who's trapped in this sitcom marriage, and she literally is trapped inside of a TV series. It's one of those stereotypical bumbling oafish husbands and the secondary character of the wife. And it's as if she becomes aware that that's the role she's playing in her life. So interesting that we have this kind of meta narrative of being trapped inside of a show. And here we have Annie Murphy once again playing Joan in this episode of television. A very intriguing premise. She turns on Netflix one day, or the Streamberry, I think it's called, the corollary there to Netflix, and discovers that there's a series called Joan is Awful, which is being recommended to her. And it's literally her life. We have seen the specific events portrayed in the show within this particular episode of the Black Mirror series. Intriguingly, it is edited the same way. So for example, I'm sure there were more mundane things, maybe pleasant things that happened early in the day, but we only see the highlights of her frustration in her relationship, her frustration at having to fire somebody at work and her unease about it, dealing with the circumstance. And of course, all the snide offhanded ways you can be cruel to each other. This seems to be the only thing we see in our representation of Joan. And of course, that's all she sees in this representation of herself as well. The difference, of course, is that she is played by Salma Hayek, <laughs> a much more glamorous version of herself. Now, by the way, no spoilers here in this section of the reviews. I'm just going to review these episodes quickly, and then I will have a spoiler section, but I'll warn you when that happens. So my review of this episode is that I found this to be really fun to see Black Mirror biting the hand that feeds it, mocking Netflix and many other hot button topics. Some of these things are actually spoilers if we get into some of the themes here, which I will break down later in this episode. So this one is a winner for me. On the negative side, I would say it doesn't fully develop the themes it raises. It really does in some ways, have a little bit of that criticism I made earlier where it's like kind of Mad Libs, technophobia, just a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And even though it doesn't really delve into these ideas really, really deeply, it does raise them in a way where in my own mind, I play out these scenarios. I do like that in very subtle ways, it makes this commentary about the future of entertainment and the Netflix model, and also just the way that content might be created for us in the future and the risks and limitations of that as well, of kind of handing over too much of our 
personal information, but also our decision-making as far as what the algorithm will recommend to us and the risks of all that in a very fun way. I thought this episode was a lot of fun. This is the corollary I'm going to make. This is this season's nosedive. Nosedive was in my first bucket, near the bottom, but in that first bucket of the best episodes of the show, in my opinion. This one is nosedive, but it's in that second bucket. So it ends up in the middle of the pack. It doesn't have that little extra pixie dust to get it over into that top category. Maybe if they had kind of picked one theme to really lean into the way that nosedive was so successful, there wasn't so much plot and there was the ability of staying with the characters in their circumstance a little bit longer. It would have been a little more satisfying to me, but this is a winner. This is a good one. It's in that second bucket of successful, but not fully successful. Second episode, completely different feel, but is once again in that same bucket for me. This is a winning episode, but not in the upper echelon of episodes. But intriguingly, breaking away from the usual Black Mirror formula, this episode, once again, written by Charlie Brooker and directed by Sam Miller, another very popular television director. This one's set in present time, but features video footage from the 90s. A couple of interesting themes start to develop here in the context of the season itself, jumping around through different time periods. We have a couple played by Samuel Blinken and his girlfriend, Mahala Harold from HBO's Industry. And they've returned to their small Scottish town to do a nature documentary. Pia, Mahala Harold's character, discovers the reason the town is such a sleepy town now is that there were some notorious murders years before that have scared away the usual tourism for a beautific part of the countryside like this. Now, this one just becomes a serial killer thriller at one point. I love the use of the old 90s documentary footage and the actual fake television series here from the 90s. That is a reference point. So I love all these details, all this nostalgia. Interestingly, we see Streamberry again, ends up buying this documentary that tr has transformed from a nature documentary into a serial killer series. And there's some pretty deft commentary here about how these stories supposedly a boogeyman story that scares away all the tourists, then popularizes this town once the series ends up on Streamberry. Once again, a playful, biting the hand that feeds Charlie Brooker. And no spoilers here. The mystery's not that hard to figure out, but this is still a very fun episode of the show. And once again, points in the direction, this show can be a thriller, does not have to only be about sci-fi technology fears. The Black Mirror can simply be a dark reflection of our own fixations and fascinations in the world we live in right now. Okay, episode three, Beyond the Sea. This is a feature length episode, an hour and 19 minutes long. And this one is set in an alternate past, 1969. And there are these two astronauts. They're recognizable, they're famous for what they're doing, which is unclear at the beginning of the episode. And what I would say is you should not go into this episode knowing too much about it. So I'm going to be pretty vague about the plot of this episode. But they are on a space mission, and you see them on Earth with their significant others before we see them in space together on this two-man mission. And I'll leave things vague there. I have many, many things to say about this episode, and mostly because I, immediately after watching this episode, would have put it at the very, very bottom, my absolute least favorite episodes ever of Black Mirror. But in preparing for this analysis, there are parts of this episode, especially the middle a long middle section, which are the best and yet fail so badly at so many things, this episode, which could have been so wonderful, has completely failed. So it's probably in that near the bottom of the barrel, but 
it barely escapes not being absolutely terrible because of, for example, Aaron Paul, one of the astronauts here in this episode, giving a truly, truly great performance. So I think this episode wants to be San Junipero, maybe, although not with the uplift of that episode, and ends up being striking vipers with aspects of crocodile, the two episodes I really, really do not like. So that's the blend we're talking about here. I won't give any spoilers here, but I'll have many things to say about this in the spoiler section. Very much on the opposite side, and maybe as a reaction, I saw these in order as they are presented. So the episode Maisie Day, my gut instinct when I saw this episode, I had a feeling that Beyond the Sea was going to have a lot of fan love, and I was really not a fan of it, and I'll tell you why later. And alternately, people were going to hate this episode, hate it so much, and I'm like, this episode is dumb. It is dumb, and I'll tell you what it's about in a minute. But I did enjoy it in its own stupid way, <laughs> and I'll tell you why. But as I was preparing my notes on this particular episode, I was like, this is really a bad episode <laughs> for, for many obvious reasons. This is another period piece. It's set in the 90s. It's set the year, I believe, that Princess Diana died. And we follow the always magnetic Zazie Beats, who unfortunately gets stuck in a lot of bad projects, by the way. I mean, a, a completely thankless role for her in The Joker, for example. I do hope she gets a star turn in something soon. And she plays a paparazzi. Paparazzo? Is that the singular? Who is desperately struggling to make ends meet and is trying to get a photograph of this starlet Maisie Day, that's the name of the episode as well, who we have seen earlier in the episode has gotten herself into serious trouble. She's out driving high when she runs somebody down and now has disappeared, disappeared from her film shoot and apparently is back in California. And Zazie Beats playing Bo and some of the other paparazzi are desperately trying to get this photograph. It'll be a huge financial win for them if they can get this photograph. This episode has the craziest twist you can imagine. And if it had just leaned into its twist, kind of just made it foundational to the episode itself, this episode would be so much better. So I think that's where when the crazy twist comes, I won't reveal it here, but I'll get into it in the spoilers. I actually thought the episode became pretty fun, despite the fact that it has a very grim button on it. And that could have been the entire episode, which I thought would have been more entertaining. <laughs> but as it is, it is this completely confused, completely unfinished feeling episode of the show. And once again, I'm not sure why Brooker doesn't work with other writers. I think all of these episodes, even the best ones, needed a little bit more of an outside voice of a more critical editing process and they would have all been better. And this is a perfect example of an episode that feels pretty much incomplete. It's a mashup of multiple ideas, none of them well-developed. Although, yeah, I think the second half is kind of fun. <laughs> That's my opinion. And it's probably the shortest episode of the season. So an easy one to watch. All that being said, by the way, before we move on to the next, <laughs> it is definitely one of the lower episodes. All right, this brings us to the fifth episode. I'm probably going to be the minority on this one, but for me... This is probably the most successful episode of the season. It's an episode called Demon 79, set in 1979. And it opens very interestingly with that red mirror production logo and very much set intentionally in 1979 outside London during the rise of the National Front Party, the openly racist British party. And not coincidentally, as the country was becoming much more diverse in its population. And of course, this has direct correlations to some of the cultural context in England right now, with Brexit, of course, being primarily driven by more rural and suburban white voters feeling alienated by the ever-diversifying, more urban 
areas of the UK. So honestly, shoehorning the politics into the show is probably the weakest aspects of it, only because it's so heavy-handed. There's enough context. You can just hint at these things without making them so overt in the plot. A, the commentary works, even though it's a little heavy-handed, and some people will probably have that feeling. But I just like this premise so much. You have our protagonist, Nita, played by Anjana Vasan, and she, as a minority in this neighborhood where she lives, is feeling all the strain of being an outsider, an unwanted outsider in this community. And one day when she's relegated to the basement, her coworker continuously complains about the smell of her leftovers. So she has to be relegated to the basement to eat them and finds a rune of some kind that brings a demon into her life called Gop and played by Papa Aseidu, who is currently on the Lazarus Project. For anybody who's watching that on TNT, if you're listening overseas, it's already been available for quite some months. And season two is about to come out, by the way, just a reminder. And this demon is dressed like the lead singer of Boney M. <laughs> Very funny to hear these Boney M songs, which are just novelty hits from the late 70s, but hugely, hugely popular. The soundtrack on this particular episode, ter terrific. All great music from the late 70s. And basically this demon tells her that she needs to kill three people in three days, or there will be a worldwide apocalypse. So kill three people or kill billions. It's up to you. Now, interestingly, Nita's mother went insane. So she's aware of the fact that there's mental illness in her family, which is yet another reason she can't trust her own impressions of what she's seeing. And neither can we fully, although there are some clues as to whether this is really happening or not. But I'll save that for the spoilers. The political allegory gets hit, hit a little too hard, but I did still find this overall to be a lot of fun. And I think the most successful of the episodes this season, not to say it goes on the top of the list of any of these Black Mirror seasons, this one is probably in that second bucket, the successful, but not fully successful. So that's my overall ranking for these five episodes. Demon 79, I think is the most successful of these, along with Jonah's Awful and Locke Henry, end up in that second tier of Black Mirror episodes of mostly successful. Whereas episode number four, Maisie Day, is probably got to go on the bottom of the list, even though I really didn't dislike it, mostly for the entertaining second half. But it's really just such a nothing burger <laughs> and definitely the laziest of all of the episodes conceptually. And then, of course, my probably outlier take on the third episode, Beyond the Sea, an episode that minus its beginning and end is some of the best that Black Mirror's ever had to offer. But I can't forget some of these incredible missteps, especially that awful, awful ending. Okay, so that's the rundown of the episodes. If you want spoilers, here they come. All right. The only spoilers I have for Joan is awful. I really enjoyed this a lot. I love the revelation that she's actually just within another, another layer of this reality. And we meet the real Joan. The version of Joan is awful that we're seeing actually does star Annie Murphy. Once again, ironically, a woman trapped inside of a series, just like she was her character in Kevin Kniff himself. The Michael Sarah cameo is hilarious, by the way. And I love the upscaled versions of all the characters as they get drawn into this. There's so many interesting ideas here. None of them fully explored, but I really appreciate the fact that this does seem very well thought out. Whereas some of the other concepts in this season really did not feel that way. First of all, the idea that you're able to create these actors by basically selling off their images, like a scan of themselves, to be used in perpetuity as virtual actors in the future. Actors are already signing these type of contracts. There are clauses on a lot of these contracts, for example, that they cannot use these images for pornographic material. 
but they do allow it for some others. And licensing out your voice, just another example of how some artists are already starting to do that using this new AI technology. So imagine that AI can render one of these characters in a photorealistic backdrop. This is already possible with these new AI innovations to create a virtual set based on just giving it a description. Text can generate photorealistic images. Those people who are being created in those photo images are not actual people. They're like merged together versions of different multiple people. But you can imagine that if you want to have a young Clint Eastwood in a new Dirty Harry remake, you could do that in the future. And the joke here is that Salma Hayek has signed off on that. And of course, that's what's being done to her in this layer of reality. And of course, has happened to Annie Murphy as well in the current layer of the reality we're seeing now. Also, some of these people get drawn in as their lives intersect with Joan's life. They become characters on a TV show. And then as they are drawn into this, that they suddenly are presented on the screen as well. And now they're being critical of, I'm on TV. Oh, that's a more glamorous version of me. Great. I love being on TV. So that's how you get drawn in. And then of course, that they were present when these words were spoken they were not as cutting or as cruel as they are in the version that Joan is seeing in her fictionalized version of her life. And even the people who know that the image is manipulated because they're in the scene, not saying what they said in real life, they still choose to see her in the most negative light possible, just jumping in on the bandwagon, which I think is so true of how inevitably when you watch a movie or see a TV show supposedly based on true events, we immediately just buy the narrative. It's more fun to believe a narrative, even when we know it's not true. And there's commentary on that. So all of this I found really, really interesting, really well done. It's touching on generated content, especially with these AI innovations, this constant surveillance that we're in, that our devices are monitoring us, that there are images of us everywhere, wherever we walk, especially with CCTV technology in the UK. The hilarious fact that, hey, this is in your terms and conditions. How many of us read our terms and conditions? We don't know what we're signing off on. For example, when you upload one of your family pictures to Facebook, the terms and conditions say that that image now belongs to Facebook, by the way. It's no longer your image. So theoretically, they could go and sell that to somebody else. Now, they haven't done that. Obviously, they're a trillion-dollar business, or were at one point anyway. They don't need to sell your photographs to make money. But the reason they have that is because, God forbid, they ever get hacked and your images get stolen. They'll be like, hey, they were our images to start with. We didn't lose your images. We lost our images. There's no harm, no foul. So they're just protecting themselves. But you don't know what you're signing off on and what will happen in the future when you've signed over all of your most intimate pictures, sometimes actually intimate pictures, by uploading them to some of these services. As I was watching the show, I like how the show was ahead of me, which oftentimes is not the case with Black Mirror. It's a little too on the nose. I'm like, no one really wants to watch Jones story. Maybe the first time a show like this would be created would be intriguing to multiple people. But over time, this wouldn't really be that interesting. What the bigger risk is with AI, and I think this is legitimately true, could you imagine that AI is going to write newspaper articles catered directly to your tastes? So the same facts, but written in a way that you like. So the facts interpreted in the way that are convenient for you to consume. Or for example, content being tailored. If we can create images, if we can modify storylines to make you happy, that is inevitably going to be the case when the content can be dynamically dictated to your preferences, or at least a micro niche of people. So that's probably more realistic. But I did like that they joke around the fact that like, no, we're going to do this for everybody. <laughs> Not just for her, we could do this for everyone. When the reporter hears this, and they're like thinking like, oh, no, <laughs> which I did also like very much how everybody thinks this is so funny that this is happening to this woman. And then of course, that 
wait a second, this can happen to me too? A lot less comfortable when that seems to be the case. All of this is kind of right on the nose, and uh, but I appreciated it. I thought it was a lot of fun. And I think pretty prescient, maybe even more so than expected when they were shooting this versus these innovations to AI that are right around the corner now. One last thing I really liked, of course, is the fact that the presentation of the facts in the show, this is Joan having her own life reflected back at her. It's her at her worst. It's her texting her ex. It's her meeting her ex for drinks. It's her saying negative things about her current boyfriend to her therapist. It's the uncomfortable interactions at work. In between all of that, she may have laughed with her boyfriend at dinner. She may have had friendly and kind interactions. She might have been mentoring somebody at her work, but we're only seeing the worst. And what the CEO says at one point, a dead ringer, by the way, for the content manager over at Netflix, she simply says, that's what people want to focus on. People don't want to focus on happy things. They want to focus on a negative. In the Joan show itself, we're seeing all these negative things because that would be the focus tailored to in this particular case. So I do think that that says something too about our tastes. All right. The second episode, Locke Henry. Similarly, I really enjoyed the fact that it's kind of saying something within these first two episodes about not only streaming and the future of content, but the same idea that you're going to focus on these really negative stories and that is going to be the thing that's going to be successful and popular. And then dealing with the personal consequences is all forgotten, right? Like it's like a big win for everybody. Like, hey, congratulations. You made the documentary. Congratulations. In the end, this is just content, something that was left behind for him by his mom before she killed herself. I thought this episode was really successful. I don't have that much to say about it. There's not that much to analyze or any kind of complexity. There is a little commentary here about our fixation with true crime, how the place you know, has been running away from its negative reputation for generations. Like All these businesses are afraid of trying to have honeymoons or weddings there because of this dark history. And then, of course, when they embrace that dark history, the location becomes hugely famous and a huge tourist attraction for its morbid curiosity. If I have one thing against the episode, did we need to kill the girlfriend to get to the end? I mean, I don't know why that's necessary. I guess there's an irony that she died. The mother can't find her. She assumes she's escaped. So now she's caught. So there is a dark irony there, but I feel like she could have just gotten away. Although I guess we do have the added loss at the end. He's lost his past and his future. And everybody else is just like, wow, things are going great right now. So it does add to the bite of the satire, but maybe a little unnecessary. But hey, I didn't really rub against it, to be honest. Though. As a matter of fact, I think I just talked myself into uh, preferring it now. All right, I'm going to skip episode three because I got a lot to say. I'm going to skip it for now. Episode four, Maisie Day. All right, Charlie Brooker is about the same age as I am. So he is definitely, he's older than I am, by the way. So he definitely has seen The Howling. And if you are going to steal so much from The Howling, just steal the whole thing. In The Howling, you have maybe some spoilers for The Howling here, by the way, from 40 something years ago. But you have the satire of tabloid local news coverage. Yes, we were making fun of it even in 1980 or 81, whenever that movie came out. And we're making fun of it now. And we're making fun of paparazzi in the 90s. Yes, it's always been the case. Morbid curiosity, these vultures feeding on the misery of other people. So you have this tabloid reporter that gets drawn into this cult, actually. Like, you know, you go out to this Californian compound where the celebrity is holed up and discover that she's a werewolf in this, which is, of course, is the crazy twist. If you haven't watched the show, that's the crazy twist. She ran someone down. Yes, indeed. She thought it was an animal. She got bit. The next day, she discovers it was a man. It was a man. It was an animal. Somehow she figures out she's a werewolf. 
has flown back to the US. She's chained up, protect everybody else. The paparazzi there, when she starts transforming, they cannot stop. Also, shades of American Werewolf in London in her transformation, which is pretty cool, although it's done intentionally, done like in the shadow so they can hide a lot of it. But the design of the werewolf there, especially during the transformation, definitely a straight reference to American Werewolf in London, which also came out at almost exactly the same time as The Howling. So if they can reference American Werewolf, they can reference The Howling. I say they should have just done exactly that. Give me a little bit of American Werewolf in London. Give me a lot of The Howling. Do even more of that. She infiltrates this compound, discovers that they are a werewolf cult. Yeah, do that. That's 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 more fun than all this. And just to have the whole chasing her after her and then only to get to the werewolf and then just a chase at the end and then whatever that whole ending is it's just it's it's a mess it's it's such a mess on the page itself could have made a few changes and this would have been a much more successful episode i'm not saying that my version the howling version would have been like a 10 out of 10 i'm not even saying that i'm just saying that this thing whatever this was was kind of a mess Although once it goes into werewolf territory, I had fun with it. I like that whole thing. Just do more werewolf where it's okay. And still put the paparazzi angle on it. Sure, sure, whatever, fine. And then Demon 79. Like I mentioned, it's a little heavy handed in some places. I like the fact that she's a unreliable narrator here of her own story. Even though the world did not end in 1979, <laughs> if we go with multiverse thinking, I do think we're supposed to believe this actually happened. And the clue is when Gop tells her to kill the guy walking his dog because he molested his daughter. Because the details, her age, her name, are correct later on when the police are investigating. So I do think we're supposed to believe this is actually happening. You could make the argument that everything after the first few minutes of the episode is happening inside of her head, but I think that's too much of a cheat to just be like, well, everything beyond minute two is made up. I'm like, well, then that's not doesn't really make sense. So what's the point of the show? But I also like the fact that they play with the, the idea that she already has this violence in her. We see every one of these indignities she suffers day to day, these minor indignities. She basically fantasizes about killing all these people around her, which still makes this thing open to interpretation. But I do like the fact that she's not all good. She is conflicted, wants to kill some people around her, on a day-to-day -day basis, she fantasizes about it, as do we all do. <laughs> I'm sure we've all fantasized about running somebody off the road who cut us off in traffic or something. She, of course, goes way beyond, but she has to, to save the world. And I do think that the show is telling us from these little clues here and there that indeed it is the case. Not only in the finale, because I think you could read the finale as saying like, well, this might all be in her head. Sure, that's true. She has a final break when midnight chimes and the world hasn't ended. She now goes into fantasy land. But I think that there are clues earlier on that this is actually happening. But to its credit, you can interpret it either way, and it's still enjoyable. And I do like them walking hand in hand into oblivion together. I thought that was fun. They were fun together, and I enjoyed this episode. All right, let's go back to Beyond the Sea. All right, I have a lot to say about this episode, and I do know sometimes I get negative reviews when I say negative things about a show. So if you really like Beyond the Sea... I've intentionally left my commentary here at the end for people who don't mind criticism of some things they like or agree with me that this was a solid episode that was ruined by some really bad decisions. So tune out now <laughs> if you don't want to hear it. And all of my nitpicks, it's not just nitpicks this time though. There's nitpicks. There's so many nitpicks here, by the way, which drives me nuts. Why? So let me get the nitpicks out of the way right away. This technology they put the living people on the ship. They're on a four-year mission. There are people right now 
who are isolating themselves for multiple years, training to potentially go on a Mars mission. These people are not going to go to Mars. They're living in isolation so they can pretend they're going to Mars. Why do I mention all this? It would be pretty easy to find someone, especially someone young. Could you imagine going to college, right? Your college age or 20, even, you know, whatever, a graduate degree. You're still early, young enough where you're like, when I come back and I'm 30, 28, whatever, I still have my whole life ahead of me. Would you like to go on a four-year mission into space that is revolutionary? Sure. Why wouldn't they go to space for four years? You could definitely get people, you could get people to do one year or two years right now on the International Space Station. Why not four years? One, that's the first nitpick. Why would you give people who have wives and children back at home this mission with all the potential additional headaches that that provides? Two, they can transmit their conscience back and forth. Why wouldn't they put the robots on the spaceship? They put the robots on the spaceship. Now they can do the same thing. And by the way, the robots don't have to feel like human flesh. They don't have to look and move and kiss, kiss like human people. Because who cares? They're just robots on a ship. They just have to push some buttons and maybe crawl around outside, et cetera. But making a robot humanoid, which is always this problem I have with science fiction in general, why would we make the robots humanoid when they don't need to look like humans? It's so much more cumbersome. So these robots could be on the ship and the conscious could go back and forth, blah, blah, blah. Then of course, Victor, we wouldn't have this episode. You're absolutely correct. But you could come up with alternatives. You could explain that maybe the conscious transferal doesn't work that well. The robots are like on a delay or something. So that you have to be the people because there's no delay. But then you'd have to indicate on earth that there is some limitation to the way the robots can react. So having these robots fishing and running and walking and painting delicately, it doesn't make any sense. Like they would not, you know, it, it either is limited or it's not. And there has to be a reason why you would design it this way. Second of all, it's like when this mission fails, it's a four-year mission, so they can't be like 100 million light years away, obviously, and they are planning to return at the end of that time. So as soon as this tragedy happens, why wouldn't you immediately send back up and be like, you're coming back early. You, you guys are coming back early. This is He's not sustainable. He's going to melt down out there. He can't. He can, we can't trust his thinking. So all of this doesn't make any sense. And I can boil it down to one simple fact. Why is this set in 1969? Make this 2023. Make this 2030. And they're using some kind of computer that's quantumly entangled with another computer to transfer their consciousness instantaneously. Something. Give me something. Anything. Anything at all. Are they broadcasting this signal? Their consciousness via radio waves to the ship, which is how far away? Like, uh, wouldn't it take like uh, hours <laughs> to transfer that? They could not just jump back and forward into their bodies. All right. So <laughs> the premise of it is very, very prog problematic to me. Problem number one. Number two, why is it set in 1969? So we can have this crazy cult. It's the summer of love. Remember 1969? This is what actually was happening. The Manson killings. Okay. That's what you want to talk about. The cultural difference in 1969. All right, fine. I am now going to get past all of my nitpicks and meet the show where it lives. It's 1969. You want to talk about the cultural changes of the time. These two men on the spaceship, these are the two, the duality of the culture at the time, right? A very, very conservative government about to come in, although it was supposedly the summer of 69 and free love. And you have this woman, this intellectual woman caught between these two men, or maybe they're both these two men inside of the spaceship. It's the two aspects of 
masculinity in our culture. That's what the show's talking about. And I think it is. I think it's trying to explore this. And that's why we have this time period. That's why we have some of these events that occur in the show. But I'm having a big problem with the technology. I accept that to accept the metaphor. Fine. Okay. I'm there with you. Then we have this brutal murder of his family, which is very upsetting to me, by the way. And maybe I'm being overly sensitive to this, but I'm just supposed to just be okay with it. This is a really, really brutal thing to introduce to the show. Just to introduce, just the setup of this situation. I'm like, really? It's a little bit too much for me. <laughs> and then all of that is discarded. I'm thinking like, well, maybe the cult now is going to be searching for Kate Mara's character too. Maybe that's what's starting to happen. But no, they turned themselves in. They're out of the story. That was just set up. That was just set up, Victor. We're just setting things up. I'm really not liking this episode at all at this point. And then we get an opportunity here to have Aaron Paul give a truly great performance. He gets to play both of these people embodied in the same body. And you can see the nuance in his performance. He gives a great performance. And I like the fact that the show actually, in the middle se segment, is some of the best writing we've ever seen in Black Mirror. The show becomes very slow paced. We spend time with these characters. We get to see that Kate Mara is lonely, right? She's been abandoned by her husband. She has to be afraid of these crazy cult of people who may potentially be targeting her and her child as well. And all of this is so that for this mission. So she's sacrificing herself for something that she can't even experience. It's for his adventure and her life is on hold while she's waiting. All of this is really well done. And I also love the fact that now this interloper shows up. She has this emotional affair with him. And there's so many really great elements here when the Josh Hartnett character makes a sexual move on her in the guise of her husband or in this robot body of her husband. She responds to it and then shuts it down. And he reads that as, you're in love with me. I saw the way you look at me. And she says, no, I'm looking at my husband and you are giving me what I wish I had with my husband. You are a fantasy. Crystallized further when Aaron Paul's character finds the pictures that Josh Hartnett's been drawing of her in the nude. And the Josh Hartnett character tells him that it's all a fantasy. It's all in my mind. And this is all true. And at this moment in the episode, I think that here's a show that's actually maturely exploring these different aspects of how society did change at that point in time, 1969, this changing of the guard between a more conservative, not politically conservative, but more conservative role for women and the evolving role of men, et cetera. And we're seeing this play out through this metaphor. And at this point, I start thinking, okay, what's this show going to do with this idea? You have the fact that Aaron Paul's character is trapped. His physical body is on that ship. It needs to return. And he is now reliant on Josh Hartnett's character to accomplish the mission so that he can return that body to him here on earth. And this symbiotic and maybe dangerous relationship there's so many interesting ways that this story could have gone. You could imagine that they decide to share his wife and that the wife's not aware of it. So maybe everybody ends up satisfied at the end, but in a way, Kate Mara's character, the wife, Lana, is in a way victimized by this relationship. And she's like clueless. She just thinks that this is a more satisfying version of her marriage with her husband now. And now she's okay with this, this circumstance because she gets both versions of her husband, this fantasy version and the real version, the practical version. There could be a nightmare version of this where Lana now is aware she has to spend this time with Josh Hartnett's David character, and she has to play 
the doting wife to keep him happy because what she really wants is her husband back on earth safe at home. So you can make this a very dark ending that is still character driven. Instead, instead, we get this very, very bleak ending where David, the artist character, supposedly maybe the more hippie-ish version of this, twosome, is so mad at the macho Cliff, Aaron Paul's character, for saying that you can never have her again, that he's like, all right, well then I'm going to go and murder her and her child so that you know exactly how I feel. This is so out of character. No one who has experienced the loss that he had, there's no indication that he's a straight up sociopath. As a matter of fact, he very rationally talked to him and said, look, I'm, this is fantasy. It's fantasy for all of us. And we're just trying to be adults about it. And that flips in a minute to him being a straight up serial killer just to put Cliff in the same circumstance that he's in. So now he really knows. You want to know how I feel? This is exactly how I feel. I did to you exactly what was done to me. I, I just don't buy it for a second. It's just not in this character. You could have at least shown him somehow slowly becoming more deranged to make this maybe land a little bit better. It didn't work at all. I thought it was absolutely ridiculous. And by the way, it derails what is in the middle, a really great episode, and then really just blows it all in this terrible, terrible ending. You could have even just had, we see how toxic Cliff becomes, the Aaron Paul character, when he's confronted with just the fact that David is even just interested sexually in his wife and that maybe his wife was responsive. You could imagine her running away, having nobody, not being able to live with him anymore. And now he has an empty house to go back to. He's in the same situation that David is. And now they still have to have that moment on the ship at the end where they're thinking, we've both lost everything for completely different reasons. My wife was murdered. You just did it to yourself, right? There's still a lesson to be learned in that as well. All this is to say that these are just a few of the ways you could have ended this episode. It has this terrible ending and this ridiculous early segment that doesn't pay off in any significant way, which really is there only to set up the ending, which is already terrible. So it's, you know, they must have spent a lot of money. It looks great. The performances are very good, especially Kate Mara and Aaron Paul. And all for what? I don't know. I don't know, man. Okay. So that's my opinion of that particular episode. And in general, this was a stronger season of the show than the previous one. I'd say roughly on par with season four, although fewer episodes. I'm sure Charlie Brooker is not listening to this at all, but I think he needs someone to give a script a second look over. I'm sure he has people, by the way. I'm sure there are people who are working on these scripts with him, at least at the story level before he writes those scripts. It's almost like people need to go through the script with a more critical eye and be like, don't be so cynical. Like, I, I know you're going to go with a cynical take on this. It's fine to have cynicism in there, but don't just want to land that cynical blow at the end. Like, let's change it up every once in a while. Let's just change it up a little bit. Uh, and maybe that's why I appreciated that Demon 79 episode, because it does change it up there, right? As dark as that is in content, it has a happy ending. <laughs> Even if it's all just in her own mental, like it's just her fugue state strapped down to a bed in, in a mental institute somewhere, <laughs> she's still happy in her mind. So what's your ranking of these episodes versus previous seasons and the some of you have already sent me your rankings of the show. If you haven't, please do send them our way. And I might have a whole episode where I discuss some of the reaction from our audience to these current episodes and to the previous episodes as well. 
I look forward to your feedback. Needs some introduction at gmail.com if you'd like to send them our way. All right, so that's the episode. Next week, as I mentioned, lots of things to cover. I don't know how many episodes this will be in. The Idol, continued coverage of The Idol. Secret Invasion, the new Marvel MCU series, which is getting some pretty mixed reviews. So we'll have to wait and see how that all plays out. And Silo, closing in on its finale. Plus The Bear is premiering. A review of that full season, which is dropping all at once on Hulu toward the end of the week, or probably we'll have to wait until Monday. I also might catch up on The Flash. I've seen Bo is Afraid and have many, many things to say about that, which is available to rent now finally at home. And if you'd like to support the show, make sure you subscribe. Give us a five-star rating on your podcatcher of choice. Write us a review or just check out our back catalog of other shows we've covered along the way. Of course, we just wrapped up Barry and Succession on HBO, as well as Yellow Jackets on Showtime, The Last of Us, House of the Dragon, The White Lotus, Better Call Saul, Severance, our first real breakout here on the podcast. And of course, season two of Severance is on the way. So track down those shows or stay tuned for new shows we'll be covering later this year. Hope you enjoyed the episode and I'll talk to you soon.